The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Let's turn to Zephaniah. The book of Zephaniah, we've been going through the minor prophets, the the latter prophets as they used to be called, or the book of the twelve, which is the last twelve books in our Old Testament. And the reason they're called minor prophets is not because they're unimportant, but rather because they're short. All twelve of these uh, prophecies, these books, could fit onto one scroll. And so they were often called the book of the twelve that fit on this one scroll and We've seen throughout the Minor Prophets that there's this theme emerging, this pattern emerging that God is going to be glorified in bringing salvation through judgment. That salvation comes through judgment, not apart from it. And this means of bringing salvation to His people by judging the earth and the world and the enemies of His people and His enemies is actually going to bring Him the greatest glory and bring us the greatest joy. This is God's plan. This is His perfect plan from the beginning. Uh, When I was in uh, high school, I had a career job at Service Merchandise. Uh, It was right after my career job as a lifeguard and right before my career job as a pizza delivery driver. But I was working at Service Merchandise, and we had this big jewelry section. In fact, I think I spent a lot of money buying jewelry for Jennifer in the jewelry department at Service Merchandise. But they have this, you know this, they have this... um, technique of showing off the diamonds by putting them on a black canvas, a black mat, so that the backdrop of black causes the the retina blaster lights from the top to shine on these diamonds so that they sparkle and so that you desire them more. And we see this in the book of Zephaniah especially. It's one of the most severe books of judgment And we've seen some severity in the judgment so far that God is going to bring here. The book of Zephaniah is is bringing together a number of themes that we've already seen. The day of the Lord that's going to come. That's going to be a day of judgment by which God delivers His people and judges the earth. Uh, This theme of, of God as a warrior. He's a warrior who fights for His people as we saw in the book of Obadiah. He's going to even destroy these mighty fortresses like up on the mountains in Edom. He's a God who delivers, but, but we also see these themes of God is going to bring salvation not only to His people Israel, but to the whole earth, which we saw in Jonah, where Noah, uh, Jonah is a, a prototype uh, of this gospel message that goes out to the nations because Jonah takes the message of repentance to Nineveh. Of course, Jonah's not happy about it, you remember He's angry the whole book. The only time he's happy in the book is when God causes the plant to grow over his head as he's waiting to watch Nineveh be nuked off the face of the earth. Forty days he waits, and then God doesn't do it. God actually relents and shows mercy to Nineveh, and so Jonah gets mad and the plant dies. And then he's so angry, he says, God, why don't you just kill me now and take my life? God says, do you have a right to be angry? And he says, of course I have a right to be angry. Because God, they're your enemies. They deserve your judgment. And this pattern emerges throughout the minor prophets that even in the midst of judgment, God demonstrates His love and His mercy. We heard it in 2 Peter 3. God is patient. He's not slow concerning His promises. He's patient. Not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
You see, and some people take God's kindness for weakness. They take the fact that God hasn't acted, and they believe that therefore God will not act. And we're going to see that in the book of Zephaniah. Practical atheists who say, God's not going to do good or bad to me. Basically, he's asleep at the wheel, and I can do what I want, and I can be the functional God in my life. And so many in our culture, in our city, this is how they live. But there's a day of judgment coming, the day of the Lord. Yahweh is by nature in the book of Zephaniah throughout the whole Bible. This is who He is. He's a God who is a God of holy righteousness, which means when His righteousness is offended, He is a God who will bring holy wrath. But He's also a God of holy love. And so for those people to whom He set His affection upon, they have a holy hope in Him that He's going to be good and make good concerning all of His promises. That's why all His promises are yes and amen in Christ. And so He shows mercy for those who return to Him by repentance and faith. So what we see in the book of Zephaniah in one sentence is Zephaniah proclaims that those who seek Yahweh the Lord will be hidden on the day of His wrath and delivered and then he's going to sing over them. That's the whole book in a nutshell. Now we're going to read it together, but it is a lot of darkness, a lot of judgment. In fact, some of the commentators are not real happy with the book of Zephaniah. Because they think, well, maybe you know, this is just too much wrath and there's no hope. But we're going to see that in the midst of even this severe judgment, chapter 1, that it's going to become judgment mingled with hope in chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. And then at the end of the book, in chapter 3, it becomes total hope. Hope in all its glory for the people of God and those who love Him. And so, let's read, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, I want to read down to just chapter 2, verse 3 for now. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place a remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. And on that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar. For all the traitors are no more, and all who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will He do ill. 
Their goods shall be plundered, their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do His commandments. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Wow. That'll bring people in, won't it? This judgment, the end of the world, and the question that arises is, is there any hope? Is there any hope? Because even when we see, seek the Lord in chapter 2, verse 3, He says, perhaps you may be hidden. There's this question of, is God just going to wipe everything out? And, And the people of God knew this had happened before in the flood. Peter talks about it. God decided He was grieved over the earth, the evil of men's hearts. Their thoughts were always evil continually. And so He decided to wipe man off the face of the earth. But even in the midst of that great flood judgment of the past, He preserved a family. A remnant, Noah and his family in the ark. And and Peter in 2 Peter 3 talks about the earth was judged once by water and in the future it's going to be judged by fire. And we see this imagery here when he says it's going to, they're going to burn up the fire of his jealousy. Chapter 1, verse 18, all the earth will be consumed. The end is announced and judgment is coming. And that is not a message that has ever been popular. Nobody has ever liked that message. Oh, sure, Christians like that message when they don't like their governments. They like that message when they don't like their culture. And there's a righteousness to that, isn't there? We don't judge. We don't want to seek vengeance on our own. We say vengeance belongs to the Lord. He will repay And we know that the people under the altar in the book of Revelation who've been martyred for their faith under ungodly governments and dictatorships, they cry out, how long, O Lord, until You come and send Your judgments on this earth? Father says, a little while longer. And then I'm going to send My Son again. And it's going to be the day of the Lord. It's going to be the day of the wrath of God and of the Lamb. And they're going to hide their faces and they're going to try to take their idols and throw them in the caves of the earth and bury themselves to flee and there will be no place to flee, Revelation says. And when we went through the book of Revelation a couple years ago, we saw that there should be a sense in which this brings us hope. God is going to be faithful to His promises. 
And one of his promises is he's going to deliver his people. He's going to vindicate them. He's going to exalt them and glorify them with his son. We're seated in the heavenlies with Christ now, Ephesians says, but we don't yet see it. Hebrews says, we don't see it yet, but we see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. There's going to be a day when everything is going to be made right. And we long for that day. We hope for that day. Especially if we've ever suffered injustice and wrong. Particularly for the sake of Christ. And so this end of the world is coming, but, but this people in Judah at this time, Zephaniah, he gives, us, he gives us four generations and he says that he's a descendant of King Hezekiah. The last good king in between Hezekiah and Josiah, he was the only good king. Then there were a number of evil kings between Hezekiah and Josiah. And as the great-grandson, great-great-grandson of Hezekiah, he ministered, Zephaniah ministered during the reign of Josiah. And speculation is that perhaps he's the one who influenced young King Josiah to seek the Lord and to rebuild the temple and to pursue the things of God. Because then when Josiah, you remember, they, they uncovered the word of the Lord they, they found it and Josiah wrote out a copy and then the reforms began and it was like, perhaps this is the golden age. Again, a descendant of King David is a good king who's going to deliver us. But of course, Josiah dies in battle, so he's not the Messiah. But there's a descendant of David who's going to come who is going to restore and deliver. And Zephaniah is speaking of that day. And so he's speaking into a culture probably before Josiah's reforms when the people were wicked and evil and they said they were God's people, but really they lived as if God wasn't around. Practical atheists. In chapter 1, verse 12, it says they're complacent. They're complacent. And they say in their hearts... The Lord's not going to do good, and He's not going to do ill. So they give lip service that they believe that God is there, so they're not true atheists who say God is not there, but they're practical atheists who say God is not here. He's not with us. He's not eminent. He's not involved in our lives. He's not going to do us good or ill, so I'll go ahead and get complacent, and I'll build my houses, and I'll plant my vineyards, and I'll enjoy all of the success and the wealth that I have, and I'll be king in my world, and God says it's all going to crumble in an instant. And that's convicting, isn't it? Because we get that way. We become this way. We believe as the church of God, as Christians, we believe God exists and He's there, but sometimes we don't think He's here in our midst, here in our lives, and we get complacent. And we say, He's not going to do us good or ill. I better just go ahead and live my life and work my career and make my money and and invest in my things and enjoy this world. And they turn into idols. So God tells Judah He's going to judge them. The word of the Lord is spoken. Verse 1, the very first words, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah. There's authority inherent in the proclamation. Five times the word of the Lord is spoken in Zephaniah. And there's these questions. Could people accept a message of total destruction? The word of the Lord comes. Was the destruction of Jerusalem even believable? They were living in prosperity. The word of the Lord comes and says Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Will the dis- That's chapter 1, verse 10. 
Will the destruction represented by Sodom be repeated? Chapter 2, verse 9. Absolutely it will. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by fire and brimstone, so the earth is going to be destroyed. Chapter 3, verse 8. Is there even a shred of hope in this flood tide of judgment? And the answer is yes, there is. Because the God who judges is also the God who's a God of mercy and compassion and covenant faithfulness. And the cause we see back in chapter 1, verse 3, the cause, the root cause of this judgment is wickedness. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble along with the wicked. It's wickedness. It's sin. The root cause of their wickedness, verses 4 and 5, was idolatry. They were worshiping other gods. They were worshiping Baal. They were worshiping gods of this world. They were bowing down to the hosts of the heaven, the creature rather than the creator. And so at the root of their wickedness was idolatry. And think about this. Those who lived in Jerusalem, they were nearest to the presence of the Lord. They had the temple in their midst, but their loyalty was elsewhere. They also had religious error. They worshipped Baal. He was the god of productivity. In Canaanite religion, he made the land and the animals and the humans fertile. And so he's, uh, as um, one commentator, Motier said, he's the god of the gross national product. He's the God of wealth, Baal is. He makes everything prosperous. This is the prosperity gospel back in the days of Zephaniah. We'll go worship at Baal's door because he's the one who causes the land to be fruitful and he causes the animals to be fruitful, which is a sign of wealth, and he causes us to be fertile. There was disloyalty in verse 5. They worshiped the creature rather than the creator. They worshiped the hosts of heaven. There was apostasy. They turned away in verse 6 from following the Lord. And as I said, there's practical atheism. They do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. They act like He doesn't exist. Now that's why a prayerless life is so offensive to the Lord. A prayerless life. Why is prayer important? It's not because it's on a checklist of things to do so that you'll be holy. Yes, it does make you holy. It's a means of grace. It is a spiritual discipline. But it's not a checklist that if you do these things, then that's an automatic guarantee that you'll be holy. Rather, prayer is fellowship and communion with the living God. And when you don't pray to Him, you basically are saying, I'm acting like you don't exist. Try it with your husband or your wife. Just don't talk to him. See how good it works out for your relationship. It won't, right? It's offensive. You see, and this is ultimately the the problem with sin. So many people think of sin as just simply, I've broken the rules. Here's the Ten Commandments and I've broken them. I just broke rules. What's so bad about that? I sped on the highway. I broke the speed limit. Nobody's really going to be angry about that. Sin is not merely breaking the rules. It's offending a holy God. You've offended a person. See, it's far different than just breaking the speed limit on the highway. It's like an invasion of privacy. It's like, it's like assaulting an individual. It's offending a person. When we sin and when we're wicked and when we commit idolatry, we give honor and glory due to God to something else. We offend Him. 
It's no wonder he's angry with us. Have you ever been offended? Of course you have. Then you understand what God feels when you sin against him. You've offended his person. And so God says the day of the Lord is coming and I'm going to wipe everything out. The end is coming. And the end is then described in verses 7 to 18 of chapter 1. And he begins with Judah in verses 7 to 14. He says in verses 8 and 9, the royalty and upper class are going to be destroyed. Verses 10 and 11, the city and the business community. Verses 12 and 13, those who are spiritually and theologically complacent. And man, he begins this in verses 7 and 8 by calling the day of the Lord a sacrifice. Which seems odd to us, but in their culture, they knew exactly what sacrifice was for. It was to pay for sin. The reason they slaughtered those lambs was to pay for sin. And so God says, the sacrifice is coming, and I'm setting up the sacrifice, and you're the offering. And I'm going to pay for sin because, like Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And so God says, I'm going to bring death. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, and are under judgment. But of course, Romans 6.23 doesn't end there, does it? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we're going to see that at the end of this book that he provides. He had planned already a way of salvation through his Messiah, And these people, even in Zephaniah's day, could believe the promises of God concerning His Messiah and be saved and delivered. Saved the same way as us, by grace, through faith, in Christ, the Messiah. Now, we know Him as Jesus. They didn't know Him as Jesus yet because He hadn't yet become incarnate. But God says, believe in these promises regarding my Messiah who's going to come and restore all things and you'll be delivered. Seek me. Seek righteousness. Seek humility, he says in chapter 2, and you'll be delivered. And so in verse 13, he tells them, life without me is a life without hope. It's a life without joy. A life without satisfaction. Your goods are going to be plundered. Your houses that you built that you take pride in, they're going to be laid waste. Even though you build them, you're not going to inhabit them. And even though you plant vineyards and you think you're going to enjoy the crop and the wine and all of the things that go along with that, parties and celebrations, you are not going to drink the wine from your vineyards. And what he's saying is a life without me is a life without satisfaction. You see, and this is a reality throughout Scripture. Your greatest hope and joy is in God. And if you find your hope and joy in anything else, you're settling for second best. You're settling for things that are going to fade away. The Scriptures don't say that the problem with you is that your joys are too, your hopes and your desires and your joys are too strong, but rather they're too weak. You settle for so much less than God. At His right hand is fullness of joy. At His right hand is pleasures forevermore. We ought to seek Him. So Judah is under judgment. And then the world in verses 14 to 18. And what we see in verses 14 to 18 is a reversal of the creation. Day one, the day of the Lord is a day of wrath. Light becomes wrath. Day two, the water and sky that were made suffer distress and anguish. It's a day of distress and anguish. The ordering of the sea and land, rather than order, become ruin and devastation. 
Day four, the sun and moon are replaced with darkness and gloom, this day of darkness and gloom. Day five, the open expanse of the sky is shrouded in clouds and thick darkness. Day six, humanity itself faces its destruction in trumpet blast and battle cry. The Lord is a warrior who's going to come, and He's going to do war against humanity itself. And He's going to undo everything He did in the creation. But then He's going to make all things new. We saw that in 2 Peter 3. Everything's going to be passed through fire. But He's going to make all things new, a new heavens and a new earth. And again, the reason for judgment is sin. Offense against the Lord. He's a holy and jealous God who will not allow His glory to be given to another. Now, most of the time for us, human jealousy, it hurts us. When we're jealous, it hurts us. But when it comes to God, His jealousy is a virtue. It's a virtue. In fact, it's one of His perfections, His jealousy, that He will not give His glory to another. And I believe that part of this marriage, uh, what we have in marriage is as, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, it's a picture of Christ in the church. It's a picture of Christ's love for His bride. And here we see a, a taste of jealousy. A husband for a wife and a wife for a husband. There isn't much worse than when someone flirts with your bride. And that jealousy that comes up is a righteous jealousy that she is my bride, she's not your bride. You can't flirt with her. This is what God says. It's the only time jealousy is right in our life, I think. I can't think of another time jealousy is right. What kind of God would He be if He wasn't bothered to see idolatry? What kind of God would He be? Is He supposed to just laugh it away? Is He supposed to just withhold His wrath? When what we end up doing is replacing Him with a golden calf? That's what Israel did. And we might say we don't worship calves. We don't worship idols like that. But for us, we replace it with self and sex and cash. That's what we do. These are the things that provoke His wrath, that provoke Him to jealousy. And so what Zephaniah says in chapter 2, 1-3 to is, you need to be ready. There's an appeal to readiness. There's an appeal to seek the Lord He says, gather together, chapter 2, verse 1. Before this takes effect, before the day passes, verse 2, seek the Lord. Verse 3, rather, seek the Lord, you humble of the land. Seek righteousness and humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. In Scripture, this is such an ironic thing. The only way to flee God is to flee to Him. The only way to escape God's holy righteousness is to run to Him through Christ, through the Lord Jesus. And it's done with a spirit of humility, with the intention of obedience. This is repentance and faith. In 2 Peter 3, we see this. God is slow concerning His... He's not slow, rather, concerning His promises. He desires none should perish, but all would come to Him. And so today is the day when He's saying, come to Me. Stop running from Me. Stop worshiping at the idols of your heart and come to Me so that you could be saved. So that you could have joy, indestructible, hope and peace, hope in all its glory. Come to Christ if you don't know Him. 
teenagers, you who've grown up in this church, who've heard it all a thousand times, do you know him? Have you bowed the knee to him? Come to Christ. And so there's this great day of judgment coming. And then there's a transition. Chapter 2, verse 4 to chapter 3, verse 8. There's judgment, but there's this mingling of hope. In chapter 2, verses 4 to 15, we're, we're not going to look at it in, in great detail. I'm going to read through it. But what you're going to see is that what... Zephaniah does is he looks to the west, to Philistia. He looks to the east, to Moab and Ammon. He looks to the south, to Cush, and then the north to Assyria. And he says, God's going to judge them all. He's the judge of the whole earth. And he's going to do what's right. Chapter 2, verse 4. Gaza shall be deserted. Ashkelon shall be a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon. And Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nations of the Carathites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I've heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they've taunted my people and made boasts against the territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like a desert. Herds shall lie in her midst, all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold. For her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she's become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes her fist. Now, I don't, when I think of wild beasts that inhabit desolate places, my first thought is not hedgehogs. Verse 14, but evidently owls and hedgehogs are vicious wild beasts. No, the picture is desolation. We get that, though the creatures may be different in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. The picture is desolation and ruin. In other words, the whole earth, the whole earth is going to be judged. The north, the south, the east, and the west. And the God is the God of judgment. But yet in the midst of this, verse 7, there's a thread of hope. A remnant of His people shall possess the seacoast. And the Lord will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. And so there's the beginning of, these, of this hope in the midst of judgment. But before he goes to talk about the hope, he says, you know, perhaps Judah, imagine yourself listening to Zephaniah preach this. You're in Jerusalem, you're wealthy because it's a time of, of prosperity. In Israel, you're living in the capital city. You hear this prophet say, the neighbors to the east and the west and the north and the south who are my enemies, God's going to judge them. Amen. We're going to be secure. And then Zephaniah says, 
chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Oh, and by the way, Jerusalem, you're not exempt. You're going to be judged too. Chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her who's rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does draw, not, not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning He shows forth His justice. And every dawn He does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. After condemning the surrounding nations, the prophecy comes home to Judah. And the offenses within the city, verse 2, are within the leadership, verses 3 and 4. And they're inexcusable because the Lord is within her midst, verse 5. And the city has not listened. The city would not accept discipline. The city would not trust in the Lord. And the city did not draw near to Him, even though He was in their midst. The leaders, they failed in their duty. The princes failed. The judges thought only how to satisfy themselves. They were wicked judges who took bribes. The prophets were treacherous. And they lied to the people and told them what they wanted to hear. And the priests, who were supposed to be the mediators between God and man, defiled the holy. And in verse 5, the contrast is the Lord is righteous in character. He's perfect in action. He does no injustice. He's wise in His kingship. Every morning He shows forth His justice. It reminds me of Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is the Lord within their midst. And He's faithful to His responsibilities. Each morning, each dawn, He does not fail. Those who are nearest to Him are judged the worst. In fact, James says this thing that's quite scary for me as a pastor. As he says, don't presume that many of you ought to be teachers because you know you're going to incur a stricter judgment upon yourself. Hebrews 13, pastors and elders were to keep watch over your souls as those who give an account to the Lord on that day. That is a burden and a weight that is heavy. And unless the Lord had called me to ministry, I couldn't bear it. And he says those who are nearer to him are going to incur a stricter judgment. And here Judah is nearest to God, his presence, and they don't draw near. But there's hope. Verses 6 to 8 in the day of this judgment, chapter 3, verse 6. I have cut off the nations, their battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I've appointed against you. All the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Verse 8, wait for me. Waiting for God, it is not desirable nor easy, is it? We want God to answer right away. We don't want to wait. It is hard to wait. But yet, waiting on God is the only choice for those who love Him. 
Those who seek to live according to His commands. Patience is not natural. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's not natural for the wicked or the righteous, but God calls on His people to wait for Him for His deliverance. A deliverance in this book that's going to come in the form of judgment against the nations. Deliverance the Scripture speaks of is going to come when the Lord Jesus returns and comes again. And so in the last 11 verses, chapter 3, verse 9 to 20, we see at the, at the end of the world is hope in all its glory. Yahweh is going to set the whole earth to rights. Verses 9 and 10. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. The peoples of the earth are going to be saved and delivered out of every nation. And He's going to give them one speech, a pure speech by which they will worship Him. One Lord. One religion. One God and Savior. Verses 11-13, to 13, the remnant of Israel as well are going to be saved. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you rebelled against Me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in My holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, and they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. This remnant of Israel is going to be delivered and saved, and the shame over their rebellion is removed, and their pride is removed, and instead they're humble, and they're trusting, and they're faithful, and they're pure in speech. In other words, he says in verse 13, they're going to graze and lie down. Eden is restored. What was lost in the garden is going to be restored. And furthermore, in verses 14 to 17, they are both, Israel and the nations, are going to have oneness of joy. The Lord is going to take away sin from within them. They're no longer going to be under judgment. And the Lord, what He's going to do is He's going to take away sin and He's going to put within them Himself. Look at this, verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. And you shall never again fear evil. And on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one, a warrior who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The Lord is the one from whom all blessings flow. And He says He's going to remove sin and He's going to place His presence in their midst. And we know in the New Testament this is through the cross. The substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus satisfies the Lord's righteous requirements. In fact, this word Gabor, mighty one, warrior, it's used as a noun translated hero sometimes. It was used in chapter 1, verse 14. It's described most frequently in military terms as one who distinguishes himself by performing heroic deeds. In this case, God is a warrior who brings salvation. He's spoken of as the mighty God. In fact, we've heard that before, haven't we, in Isaiah 9-6, that the Son, the Messiah, his name shall be called Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor is the first one. But He's El Gabor. 
This divine warrior has declared peace. And he's in their midst. And there's no more battle cries. There's no more havoc. There's no more judgment. He's accomplished his purposes. He's vanquished the proud. And the holy and the humble will now seek his righteousness. And now the Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. Let everyone exalt and praise the great and awesome name of the Lord, for He is holy. Psalm 99, verses 1-3. to And so we see in verse 17 the Lord's love for His people. He's going to be in his, their midst. He is a divine warrior who fights on their behalf. And we know from the New Testament that Jesus is the warrior who saved by going to the cross. And He made peace by the blood of His cross. And now he has a people, and, and this is incredible what it says in verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples? He said, after I'm ascended, I'm going to send another helper, the Holy Spirit, the comforter who's going to be with you. He's not just going to be with you, he's going to be in you. So now we have, through the Spirit of God, all of the triune God dwelling inside of us, the temple of God, as the people of God, the church. And now we have peace with God. We can draw near to God. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence and find grace and mercy to help in our time of need. Why? Verse 17, He's a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. And He will quiet you by His love. Are you anxious and fearful? God can quiet you with His love. If you would know how high and wide and deep and long His love is, you'd be filled with all His fullness, Ephesians says. And then He says, He will exult over you with loud singing. He's going to rejoice over you and me with loud singing. What does that do in your imaginations to think that the God of all the universe, Lord Almighty Yahweh, Elohim, is going to sing over you? And he's not going to do it just sort of in a small voice in the corner or in the shower where nobody can hear except for your family because you croon too loud through the door. He's going to do it in public with loud singing so all the earth will hear. This is glorious. This is hope in all its glory. He's a mighty God who saves. And the Lord's love for His people, he's, He has a love that draws near and it's a saving love. And, and we see here in verse 17, it's a happy love. This makes Him happy to do this. And it's a calming, peaceful love. And it's a rejoicing love. He will sing over us who once were His enemy. And so the Lord's people in verses 18-20 to 20 become the praise of all the earth. The only ones speaking in verses 18 to 20 are the Lord. Zephaniah steps out of the way, as it were. And the pronouns turn to first person singulars I. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. God's going to have a party, a festival in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he says, I'm going to gather you. And you're no longer going to suffer reproach. You're no longer going to be shamed. Behold, at that time, he says, I will deal with all your oppressors. You don't have to worry about dealing with them. Vengeance is his. He will repay. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. Are you so broken? Are you so weak and weary that you know you can't save yourself? That's a good place to be because the Lord is the one who's going to save you. The lame and the outcast. 
At that time, he says, I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. He's going to reverse your fortunes. He's going to vindicate you and he's going to exalt you and he's going to glorify you. You're going to be glorious and you're going to have no more shame. Verse 20, at that time, I will bring you in. At that time, I will gather you together. I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. You see, in these last verses of the prophecy, we see what the New Testament reveals. We see, we see in, in shadows, in threads of what the New Testament's going to reveal. The judge of all the earth becomes a father. The warrior becomes a lover. And isn't this what we have? In Christ, we now are in a new family, the family of God, and we can now call God Father. In fact, the Spirit of God sheds abroad the love of the Father in our hearts so that we cry out, Abba, Father. His ministry is to stir up family affections. And so, turn over to Revelation 21. I just want you to see this in closing. This relationship that He's going to restore our fortunes and He's going to glorify us and He's going to call us by name. And in fact, we're going to have His name. We're going to take His name as it were. We see this in Revelation 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. And He who is seated on the throne, that's the Father, said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And He said, Write this down. You can count on this. You can bank on this. I am making all things new. These words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirst I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. This is what you have in Christ. I will be His God and He will be my Son. Family relationship. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Hope in all its glory. We are going to have relationship with the Father that is unveiled it's revealed it's in person he's going to dwell in our midst now we walk by faith and not by sight but one day our sight is going to our faith is going to be made sight and we're going to see him and we're going to we're going to be with him forever and he says he himself is going to wipe away the tears from our eyes another's not going to do it he's going to do it he's not going to mediate that through angels he's going to do it all the former things the former shames the former Uh, brokenness, the former hurts, all of the suffering that we've endured in this life, he says those are the former things and they all pass away. Hope in all its glory is found in Christ. And that's why the Father sent Him to fulfill this great promise that there's a day of judgment coming but you can seek the Lord and draw near to Him through His Son. The one who became a man and humbled Himself and was obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. And there at the cross, 
He took the penalty we deserved. He drank the cup of wrath down to the dregs so there's none left for us to drink. This is the hope of the gospel. This is hope in all its glory. This is what we sing about. This is what we're going to celebrate in the Lord's table. This wondrous mystery that God became man and suffered in our place and died a violent death under judgment to satisfy His own righteous requirement so that now we can draw near and be His children, His sons and His daughters. Father, thank You for Your Word. As we come to the table now, may it be a a wonderful time of worship together as Your people. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.